Well, welcome. If you're visiting for the first time, we've, I've met a lot of visitors from last night and today that it's their first time. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, our servants team is walking around with some Bibles. Just raise your hand and they'll get one of those to you. We're going through our Anchored in the Word series. We're looking at Mark chapter 9, which was part of our reading. So make your way to Mark chapter 9. We'll be standing in a moment to uh, read God's Word together. We look at our message today, Mountain Highs and Valley Lows. It's one thing to experience this close, intimate time with the Lord on the mountaintop. You go away for a retreat, you spend time with some believers, you just have some heavy, heavy revelation of what God's doing in your heart, you sense this closeness in the presence of God, and then you go home from the retreat, if you've ever been to a men's retreat, you've been to a woman's retreat, and it's like the devil moved in your house when you went to the retreat. And you come home to just a nightmare and the, this went wrong and a coyote ran off with your dog and somebody, you know, the kids are arrested, whatever it might be. It's, it seems like when you do something that draws you close to God, it's like on the backside of it, the ministry that is awaiting you there. And that's the thing. Why do we get filled up with the Lord so that we can encounter need and pour out for the Lord? And unless you understand those two things, because you see, you and I just want to live on the mountaintop and say, kumbaya, right? Jesus, geez, so close. And then you get home around problem people and you're like, ooh, you people have problems. What a downer, right? You're bringing me low. You're bringing me down. You get filled up so you can be poured out. And until you get that rhythm, get filled up, be poured out. Get filled up, be poured out. And in our passage of scripture here in Mark chapter 9, we're going to see exactly that. The disciples get filled up, but waiting at the bottom of the mountain is a demon-possessed child and a broken-hearted father. Who cares how wonderful the theology is on the mountain if when you come down the hill, you can't cry with a broken-hearted dad? You see, oftentimes ministry is just having the compassion, connecting with people. And there's been times that I've sat with parents that have just lost their children. What's the beep? Don't know what that is. Oh. <laughs> no worries, D. You got extra oxygen flowing. It's cool. <laughs> I'm like, was that a message from the Lord? Is the Lord talking to us today? Where'd that come from? All right. I don't know what I was saying before all of that. Uh, anyway, but to sit with a parent and, I mean, literally have no words. When you sit with people that have just lost a loved one, the best thing you can do is just cry with them. Don't try to come up with it. People make the mistake of you, you want to start pumping out Bible verses. You want to start, you know, saying, oh, God's going to do this. It, it, stop all that. It's like Job said to his friends. <laughs> They, were, they sat silent with him for seven days. They were wonderful comforters because they never opened their mouth. As soon as they opened their mouth, he says, you're all miserable counselors, all miserable comforters. Because so often in an attempt to say something, we're saying the wrong thing, right? So check this out. Peter, James, and John are going to have an incredible retreat with Jesus on the mountain with a couple of guest special guests, surprise visitors. Let's stand together and read this passage in Mark chapter 9. 
In verse 1 it said, And he said to them, Assuredly I say to you, that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and led up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles or three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Lord, we ask that you would take us to the mountain and bring us into the valley. Lord, we pray that you would fill us up now so that through this afternoon, through this week, as you bring broken hearts across our path, that we could pour out and be a blessing and have something to offer and be filled with faith to see the needs in other people's lives met as you meet the needs in ours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We see the promise, and Jesus here says, hey, you know what, there's some of you, and he's talking to all the disciples, hey, there's some of you here that are not going to see death until you see the kingdom of God in a special way. Now, that had to be kind of a cool promise, right? What do you mean I'm going to see the kingdom of God? Well, as the revelation now unfolds on the mountaintop, they get a glimpse of glory that is going to take place. And that's their little uh, snapshot, if you will, of glory. So before they died and actually went to heaven, they saw almost a picture of a heavenly scene as they went to this mountain retreat. Now, the invitation had to be something special. Because, you know, if out of 12 people, you're one of the three that has chosen to go along on the ride, I mean, you think that's pretty cool, right? I don't care what you try to say in false humility, you think it's pretty cool. If you get invited, you know, when you're on the playground and they're going to choose things, if you get picked early in the game, you think that's pretty cool. Now, Peter, James, and John, on three separate occasions, are taken with Jesus in a very uh, special way to train them and equip them because of what, how he's going to use their lives. Now, the other nine, you know, that must be troubling to them, and there's a lot of competition between them, who's the greatest, but they get, they get the invitation, Sometimes we're invited in a, to a retreat. A co-worker says, hey, let's go to this retreat. There's a minister now at uh, a church up in Northern California that when I went there for a retreat, a co-worker of his, or actually I think it was a, a brother-in-law, invited him to that retreat. This is like uh, 14, 15 years ago. And he was far from the Lord, and he came to that retreat. And I did a study through that retreat 14, 15 years ago on the life of Joseph. And it so rocked his world that he committed his life to the Lord, and now he's a pastor on staff at that church. You see, the Lord met him on that mountain retreat in a very special way, revealed himself to him through his word, by his spirit, to equip him. And now he's that minister when people walk into the church brokenhearted. His office is right there to be the one that pours out the compassion on them. And when he had me come this year, well, this last year, uh, 15 years later, he said, I want you to do the same retreat, you know, the life of Joseph. I said, well, it's been 15 years. There was hardly anybody there from 15 years before except him and a, a couple of guys. 
God doesn't take us to a place to reveal more of himself without us pouring that out, as we'll see in a moment. But in this experience, think of this. They're, most believe this is Mount Hermon, that they go up to Mount Hermon. They're high up on the mountain. It's Peter, James, and John. There's four of them. But now all of a sudden, Jesus' clothes begin to radiate with glory, like this bright white. And I love Mar only Mark's gospel attempts to try to describe it. You know, your laundry guy can't even get your clothes that white, right? If there's glory radiating out of you. But on top of that, Moses and Elijah show up for a little chat. The gospel of Luke says that they're talking about Jesus' exodus, meaning that Moses, Elijah, these people that obviously are alive and well in the heavenly realm, come to visit and have a little Bible study with Jesus. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. They both had really unusual deaths. Moses died and it says, and the Lord buried him so that the children of Israel wouldn't set up some monument and worship Moses. And Elijah, he never died, right? So the Lord separates with a fiery chariot uh, him and Elisha, his protege, and a whirlwind takes him up into heaven. So Elijah is only one of two people in the scriptures from past history that never died. Enoch went to heaven. He was not, for God took him. He just had his own little mini rapture. That'd be pretty cool, right? Go for a prayer walk. The Lord goes, ah, I just love you. Come on, come on home, right? Then, boom, be great. As soon as you got saved, if you just had the uh, beam me up Scotty moment and you just went straight to heaven. But Moses and Elijah are visiting with Jesus, and this is mind-blowing, right? The, the experience that you could overhear the Savior of the world fellowshipping about him going to the cross, being buried, rising from the dead, and Moses and Elijah somehow understanding all of that, and they're fellowshipping about that. These two supernatural creatures. Now, Peter knows, James and John, they all know that that's Moses and Elijah, how do they know? There's no introductions. There's no name text at this retreat. It's because you see the spiritual, immediately they just know. Well, they know him, Moses, because it's Charlton Heston, right? They, they know that. <laughs> I mean, that's a given. <laughs> Anybody that was raised on the Ten Commandments like myself, right? You think of Moses, I think of Charlton Heston. <clears throat> but... He knows. People ask me, do you think when we get to heaven, we're going to know each other? And I say, well, for heaven's sakes, we know each other now. I hope we're not dumber in heaven <laughs> than we are here, right? I, mean, I know you now, and if I know you now, I'm going to know you then. And there will be no need for name tags. And all the people that I want to hang out, I'm glad that we have eternity. I want to hang out with David and find out all about his life, about Joseph and uh, Daniel and all these heroes of mine, Peter and Andrew, all these guys. So they're having this incredible revelation, a heavenly supernatural revelation in this moment. And Peter doesn't know what to say, so he just says something. Do you ever feel that way? Are you that person that can't keep their mouth shut? You get, you know, it's awkward silence and you just blurt something out. It's inappropriate. The timing's no good, but you don't know what else to say and you just, bleh, you just throw it out there. That's what Peter does here. You know what? I think so. Let's just build some tents. And this is a real mistake because what he's doing is he said, you know, it's so cool. We should have a tent for you, Jesus, a tent for Moses, and a tent for Elijah. Because you see, you're all the same. But Jesus is not the same as Moses and Elijah. Jesus is the creator. He's the Lord of all and the Savior of the world. And the Father wants 
him to know that because as soon as Peter says it, the, uh, the third special guest shows up, that is God the Father, a voice speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son, hear him. That's who you need to hear. Don't worry about Moses and Elijah. There's a tendency in us to elevate people to an unhealthy degree. And that's what Peter does here in this scenario. He elevates Moses and Elijah. And the Lord wants him to know that uh, that's what needs to happen. Once again, it says in verse 7, And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. That's who you need to listen to on the mountaintop or in your morning devotions. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. So his, uh, when it says he was transfigured, it is the word metamorphosis that we have. And so there's a transformation. It's just like this glimpse of glory comes out of the, uh, the human Jesus. So he is the God-man in a very mysterious way, 100% man, 100% God. And for the sake of our time, they have some questions that are answered as they're walking down. You know how the retreat is? Hey, I'm wondering about that, what you were saying. And they come down the mountain, and he's talking to them, and they don't, well, I guess we'll make it happen. In verse 9, the questions they have. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept his word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. They just never got that or that Jesus was going to die. And they asked him, saying, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And they answered and told, him, told them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished as it is written of him. They have two conundrums as they're coming down the hill. You know, that's what happens. You come down the mountain from a retreat, and you're in a carload of guys or a carload of women, and you're like, you know, they were teaching this, but I just don't get that. I don't know what that means. And so Jesus now unpacks some things. He says, hey, I don't want you guys talking about this event until I rise from the dead. Now, first of all, sometimes more, more questions are created by the answer, right, than What's he mean by that? Because the, the disciples were really blind to this whole narrative of him suffering, dying, and rising from the dead. So they're questioning one another, what's, what's that about? What, who's going to rise? He's going to rise from the dead? But on top of that, you see Elijah was there on the mountain with Moses. And the prophecy in Malachi, the very last chapter of the Bible, is that Elijah's going to come. Now, the Bible says that uh, John the Baptist came in a way that was in the spirit and power of Elijah. So Jesus says at the end, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they wished, which meant Herod chopped off his head. He was martyred. But he said, Elijah is going to come. There's still a future fulfillment, sometimes in prophecy. And this is the mystery of this basically ivory tower of theological retreat they're having, is they're, they're learning some heavy stuff. You see, in our future, according to Revelation chapter 11, there's these two prophets that show up in Jerusalem. And this is going to happen when the temple's rebuilt. And one of those, most Bible scholars believe, is going to be Elijah. So Jesus says, yes, Elijah ultimately is going to come. But in this case, Elijah in a lesser degree in the form of John the Baptist has shown up. So they have more questions. They're puzzled. It's been an intense thing. Jesus said, glowed like a light bulb. They met Moses and Elijah. The Lord spoke from heaven. I mean, it's some heavy revies. But you get to the bottom of the hill, and here's where the ministry is. 
You see, you can have your mountain highs, but you got to come to the valley lows because that's where all the broken hearts are. Joseph Parker, one of the most uh, famous preachers of his day, he was in um, London at the same time as Charles Spurgeon. So they had incredible ministries. But Joseph Parker was speaking to a, a room full of pastors at their graduation. He said, men, if you will speak to broken hearts, you'll never lack for an audience. And that's what people that are seeking theological depth oftentimes forget. They, they come down talking about Greek and parsing the Hebrew and tearing things apart. And here's a single mom, you know, because the husband just walked off and she's got three kids. She's like, what, you know, your Greek word didn't do much for me. <laughs> what about the issue that I'm having in my life? And somehow it's weird, but we have these people that get passionate for God and they go away to seminary and they were on fire for God and they come back like the frozen chosen. Right? It's this, uh, they come back answering all the wrong questions that nobody that has broken hearts is really asking. Because broken hearts just want to know, is there hope for me today? Right? And so they meet now a desperate father. And you never meet a person that's more desperate than a mom or a dad when their child is in crisis. Some of you have children that are in a bad way now. Just in a room this big, some of you have prodigals, some of you have your kids in jail, some of you, they're on probation, they're going wild, they've walked away from God, whatever it is. And there's nothing that, like you wake up with it and go to sleep with it. When it's your kid, right? You, and you're like, they're adults, they're in their 30s, they shouldn't be, I shouldn't feel this way emotionally with the yo-yo of what's going on in their life. That's why you're so blessed when you have a wise son, a wise daughter, you're like, oh, what a blessing. It's such a relief. But in those dark times or those difficult times, now what's, what separates people from crowds is need. And this is what you see through the entire Gospels. Jesus is surrounded by multitudes, but then somebody steps up with a need and they become the centerpiece for the story to teach a lesson. And this is the lesson that is taught now to us. These people that have just had a great retreat, they come down the mountain, verse 14, and when he had came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them, arguing. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed, running to him, greeted him, and asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Jesus wants, what's going on? Then one, the dad, of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who is a mute, has a mute spirit, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. Here's a dad that sounds like we would say they're having an epileptic fit. They're having seizures, right? Just cruising along, and they go to the ground. They begin to, you know, stiffen. Because of the kind of the rough culture I came from in rodeo, when people get head injuries, like they get knocked unconscious, we call it doing the chicken. They're doing the chicken in the arena. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, rigid and, and foaming at the mouth, and they're grinding their teeth. Their eyes roll back in their head. It's kind of freaky. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that you've had that. I've had multiple experiences with this situation. And when it happens, but if it's your child and there's no injury and it's, you're like, what's wrong? In this case, this child is, it is a demon that is causing it. It's not a medical issue. It's a demonic issue. And Jesus is now going to deal with that. You and I 
are in a spiritual battle for our children. The devil wants to destroy your family. He wants to go after your sons. He wants to go after your daughters. And he'll, he'll come at multiple angles. Sometimes it's the people that come into their life, the temptations that come to their life. Because you get it, right? Life is like a, a, a big hallway, like a hotel room hallway with all these doors down the side. And as your kids are, are growing up, they're walking down this hallway, and every door is an opportunity of sin and temptation. They open the door, and they look in there and go, no, that doesn't really attract me. They walk down the hall, they open the door, oh, that doesn't really attract me. They get down the hall, and they open one door, fill in the blank, whatever that sin is. Sometimes it's some substance, alcohol, drugs, porn, greed. You know, just fill in the blank, and they go, oh, I like this room, and they go in. And their life begins to be swept away. And now you're, as a parent, like, what's happening to my kid? What's going on? And you begin to pray. And sometimes, sadly, they're in that bondage for a long time before they come out the other side. One night, I was uh, awakened out of my sleep in a startling way. I, I don't dream much. I don't really, I mean, I've had very few spiritual dreams in my life. Uh, old men dream dreams. Young men see visions. And I was startled out of my sleep, I had, in this dream, the devil was coming for my son, Caleb. My son was like nine, something like that, nine or ten. And it was so real and so vivid in my dream, and it was the language of when Jesus spoke to Peter that the devil's coming for your child to sift him as wheat. I was awakened from my deep sleep, and I just got up, and, and my son was in his bedroom upstairs, and I went upstairs, and I, I laid hands on him while he slept and, and prayed over him that the Lord would just keep him safe and have his hand on him, because I, I don't know what's going on, but whatever it is, I want nothing to do with it, and God, you got to help me. you got to help me with my boy. you got to help me with my daughter. You see, when the devil comes after our kids, oftentimes that's the way he's coming after you through the most tender place in your life. Sometimes when he's coming after you, he's coming through his, your spouse because he knows that's an area that he can get to you. Because for the rest of the world, oftentimes we're braced, like we're ready, you know, we're ready for it. But the Bible says the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may, may devour. Like he is active in what he does. So, this father lays out his request, and he said, I ask your disciples. Now, this is the, Jesus is a little disappointed. Look at his wording here in verse 19. And he answered him and said, oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, that's Jesus' gentle scolding of his disciples. How long do I have to hang out with you guys? How, I keep showing you and showing you and showing you and telling you and demonstrating. I mean, how much do I have to do? Oh, finally, just bring the kid to me. <laughs> we often don't see Jesus irritated, right, or frustrated with his disciples. But what does he say? He says, oh, faithless generation. The only way to please God is through faith. Those, it's impossible to please God without faith. For those who come to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. 
And so in the process, when Jesus asked for them to come in verse 20, then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. He fell on the ground, wallowed and foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Since the time my boy was a kid, this spirit that comes upon him, I mean, throwing him into the campfire, throwing him into the water, trying to drown him, and he knows ultimately that the devil wants to destroy his kid. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. There's nothing good in him. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your kids. He wants to destroy your witness, your career. The devil never has a good day when it comes to you. He wants to destroy you. And when you underestimate that, you're, you know, the Bible says, if you think you stand firm, take heed lest you fall. You have a serious adversary. Now, as long as we submit to God and resist the devil, we're in good place. What's going on with your kids? How long has it been going on? How long have you been praying about it? How long have you been crying about it? How long have you, you know, and the father says, you know, it's been, I've been having this for years. Sometimes it's a medical issue. I just... Something happens in your kid's life, and now it's this constant medical challenge, and it's, it's really heartbreaking. And you never know until you have that, like, that opportunity. Like, you think you might lose your kid. Now, as Christians, we dedicate our children to the Lord when they're little, but most people don't mean it. <laughs> you see, at that moment, I, I'm, I'm handing my child to the Lord. He's going to do with my... All of us are terminal. My son, my daughter, my wife, everybody that I love, we're all terminal. We're all going to die at some time. But, you know, some people go early. When my son was young, he had this really strange outbreak on his side. I looked at it one day, it was this big. I looked at it another day, it was bigger. And it, got, it was like in three or four days, it started to accelerate. And I'm, I'm like, that doesn't look right. So I made an appointment with the dermatologist. I took him. He's like four, four years old, five. And uh, I'm sitting in the doctor's office with my boy. And, and I look in the dermatology doctor room. There's pictures of melanoma, you know, the most fatal type of skin cancer. And, and the picture of the melanoma looks just exactly what's on my son's side. But I'm not a medical professional, so I thought to myself, you know, surely it's not. Like, to a novice or the uneducated, that looks like what's on my son's side. I take him into the doctor, and I saw from the doctor's reaction, he said he thought it was the same thing from his professional. He said, Mr. Brown, I think your son has melanoma. This, this looks like melanoma. And, and I knew from reports and knowing people that have died from melanoma, how quick it is. And I knew, you know how the doctors, they check something out and make an appointment in two weeks and we'll check it out. No, the doctor said, we're taking it off him right now. When I saw his urgency, I knew how serious he thought it was. So he got this, this scoop that would take like a dime size, just chunk out, out of his skin, not just the skin, but you know, some of the flesh underneath and uh, gave him a shot and I'm, you know, it's not easy to, do surgery and hold your four-year-old down. And I've got holding my boy down, and he's squirming around, and the doctor takes it off. And I said, well, doc, if it's melanoma, what's next? He goes, well, we're going to run a test. If it's melanoma, you'll get a test result. Now, isn't this the worst five to seven days of your whole life? Anybody had that experience? You'll know in five to seven days whether you're going to be burying your son. And he said, if it is melanoma, he says, you will be coming back, and I will be going and probably taking his ribs that are below it. Because 
we have to be that aggressive with this. I'm looking at my little four-year-old, think, you know, with a hole in his side, them taking part of his ribs. My wife and I pray, we just cry out to the Lord. Fortunately, it was not that. It was something, you know, look, but it was benign. And, but it's like the longest five to seven days of your life. Because it's touching the apple of your eye. Imagine this father has been going through this for years, and he just cries out in desperation to Jesus and says, you know, if you could do something, could you have compassion on us? If, if, if you could help us at all? This is my boy. And this is my daily experience with him. Jesus' response here is something that all of us need to hear and use and pray. For me, it's been a lifelong prayer in times when my faith is weak. Jesus tells him this in verse 23. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Don't you feel like that when your back's against the wall? Like, Lord, I do believe in you, but help my unbelief. There's a big chunk of me that, that is also still in unbelief. I, I can't quite get over that hump. I, I, I don't have enough faith. It sounds like what you're telling me, that all things are possible, but I, I, don't, I don't feel emotionally like all things are possible for me. But by faith, I trust you that, that you could do that, but help my unbelief. It's not the wrong prayer to say, Lord, help my unbelief. It's the right prayer. It's the right request, right? Because if you're struggling right now, that you're, and you might, because what happens is we give up. If you're struggling with a certain issue for a long time and you've prayed, I've prayed for three years for this. I just said, forget it. I'm not praying anymore. This father had been looking for help for years for his boy, for years. And so when somebody said, you know, if you could just believe, you say, how much longer do I have to believe? Right? When will God come through? When, when will, this, when will de- a deliverance happen? When will God come through? Well, in his grace and in his goodness, this prayer <laughs> is something you just have to have in your arsenal when you talk to God in, your, in places of weakness. Lord, help my unbelief. I, I do believe, but help my unbelief. So often I've had to pray it in really tough situations with people or even my own family. I had a really, an elder in our church, a very close relationship, family relationship with us, and his 17-year-old drowned. And um, the dad had just been in my office that morning, and we were talking about things. I was talking to him about the calling of God in his life and that um, he should come join me as an assistant pastor. He was my elder, but... He had been a deputy sheriff for 23 years, and he had been, it was his day off, so he had been swimming at the Y, he swam all the time, or the aquatic center, and he came in, I remember, he was barefoot, and he walked in to my office, coming from the pool, and he goes, you know, people that go into ministry have usually went through some hard things, and uh, he goes, I don't feel that way, I just, you know, I love, I, I love God, and I love you, and I've been helping you, and I said, I know, and I appreciate your help, but I need more help, and that was in the morning, like at 9 in the morning. Then I got a call at 5.40 on that Wednesday afternoon that somebody said that Jake had drowned. That's his boy, his 17-year-old. We'd just been at their house two weeks before then playing, playing basketball with Jake in the driveway. And I couldn't believe that. I mean, Jake's an athlete. I, I couldn't believe that he drowned. And you know how rumors are. He's just like, eh, I'm not believing that. And so I thought, well, I'll just call dispatch. So I called dispatch. 
and they can't give that information out. So I, my reputation was known in the valet, the dispatcher. I said, hey, uh, is this true? And the dispatcher, a, a woman, she said, well, Pastor Brown, you know I can't give you that information. I said, I know. I was waiting for, like, how could she slip me the information? And she said, but I know that um, Officer Boyle would love it if you went to Ryrie Dam. Then I knew it was true. And I got there. You see, my friend was not only a deputy sheriff. He was the dive officer that dove for bodies. So he was diving for his own boy. When I got there, they had just brought Jake out of the water. And got him in the ambulance. They, went to, they resuscitated him. But you see, a 17-year-old, they're so, they're so healthy that even though they're dead, you can resuscitate the heart, and the heart will just beat, like on its own, just because of the nature of things. And so we went there, and we had a prayer vigil. I mean, the church emptied into the, I had a Wednesday night service that night. I just asked them to have a prayer time. After the prayer time, most of the church, like 100 people, flooded the hallways of the, the hospital, singing, you know, they had guitars, and they're taking over the hospital. Security came and said, Pastor, you got to get your people out of here. I said, I'm not saying a word to these people. We're, we're here to pray for our friends. But the next day, he was diagnosed as, as brain dead. And then I had to sit with my friends as they decided to give his body parts away. Because he wanted to donate his heart, his liver, his, you know, the things that would work. And after this, it was so crushing. I mean, the whole thing was so overwhelming. We had, somebody had brought a camper to the hospital so that they could go back and forth over these couple of days. And I went out and I just, I didn't know what to do. I just went out and knocked on the door. I had been with him through all the meetings and the doctor's meetings. And my friend opened the door and he looked at me. And we're close. And he said, you got some guts, Rick. Come in here right now. And I said, I don't know about guts, but I got some tears. So we just went in there in this camera. We just bawled together. God help my unbelief in this place of loss. Because sometimes the healing doesn't come. Sometimes healing is heaven. And it takes as much faith to receive that healing as it does this healing. Sometimes God does this work as he does right now in this individual's life. For it says in verse 25, when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. The kid convulses, but it's so dramatic when this whole, the, the a demon comes out of him that his body seems lifeless. But then Jesus raises him up, and he's now going to give him to the Father. This is one of those things that when the, when the story ends with this happy ending, we all, all say amen and hallelujah. But until that ending for each one of our stories, we're waiting for the amen, right? When you're praying and that the Lord would help us in our unbelief, help us in the struggle of that. But why did the disciples fail? Why, they, why couldn't they do it? They want to know in verse 28 because don't you want to know? I want to know because, you see, I come in contact with broken hearts, needy people all the time. And even though I'm having this incredible intimacy with the Lord on the mountain, it has to translate into ministry for really broken lives. Because th that's what ministry is, being filled up so you can be poured out. So it says in verse 28, they want to know about their failure. 
And when he had come to the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Matthew's gospel of this same story tells us, so Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, number one, they were faithless. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have the faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will, it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. So what do we discover? First of all, you only need a little bit of faith to move into any situation. A mustard seed is a very small amount of faith. You don't have to wonder. That's why people are so awkward around grieving people that have lost someone. They're like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. So you just avoid these people that you love. And the next time you see them, then it's even more awkward, right? Because you should have done something. Well, you just need the faith of a mustard seed to come along and send a note. Don't, don't try to come up with an answer. Don't try to explain why. Don't start pumping Bible verses at them. Just sit with them. Be quiet. Maybe help them with a meal. Cry with them when they want to cry. Listen to them when they want to talk. People are lousy comforters because they don't know how to simply be present without being busy. They just want somebody to be there. So have enough faith to step into any situation, and it doesn't matter. I don't care how scary it is, how big it is, what somebody's going through. You might be, I'm overwhelmed. I don't, I don't know the answer. I would tell my assistant pastors that I raised up through the years. As a young guy, I thought I had to have all the answers. I just listened to people and pray with them and ask God to help. I said, you can't mess that up. Right? You simply can't mess that up. Now, obviously, we know a lot of scriptures, and we can give a lot in counseling, but when you'll just listen and be present and pray and have the faith in that moment, God can move mountains. Whatever you're facing is not impossible for God to work. I don't care what it is. Fill in the blank. <laughs> After a service like that, I had this couple come up to me. They're in their 60s. And they had a 35-year-old son. And they had raised him in the church. They had raised him in the ways of the Lord. But when he became an adult, he embraced the homosexual lifestyle. He moved to New York City. And he cut off all conversation and ties with his parents. They hadn't talked to him in three years. He's living, he's living the gay lifestyle in New York City. They don't know if he's safe, if he's on the street. They don't know anything. Parents you know, just wanted to know. And they loved him. His name was Matt. And they came up and they were just crying afterwards. And they said, we, it's been three years. Three years. We haven't talked to our son. We love our son. He's chosen a lifestyle we don't agree with, but we still love him. We, we're there for him. And I said, well, let's just pray right now that the Lord will just move on his heart to reach out to you and to call you. He knows your number. You don't know his number. He knows, he knows the way home, right? And so we prayed for him. And the next night, it's been three years, the next night he called home. Because it takes just a little bit of faith to step into this. Let's just ask God to move on him. You, you, they were like, should we get a private investigator? Should we go to Just pray for God to work. It's a cool thing. Prayer is free. And there's nowhere it can't touch. I can pray for President Biden right now. And it can reach there. Whether it has much effect, I don't know. Right? But it's not limited by geography. It's not limited because I just have to have a little bit of faith to bring to the table. So the disciples just need a little bit of faith, but then he tells them, but this stubborn kind of demon, there were demons that they cast out 
on site. Paul the Apostle cast out demons. Peter, all the apostles cast out demons. But he said, some demons are super stubborn. You actually have to fast and pray. So I tell people when they're up against a roadblock, and they said, well, I've been praying about it. I said, how long have you been praying about it? And they'll say, oh, I've been praying about six months, but it seems like to no avail. I said, well, have you fasted and pray? And they say, well, why does that make a difference? Fasting and prayer is like bringing a huge sledgehammer of prayer to the concrete wall or barrier that's between you and that situation. So fasting is when I say, God, I would rather have you move in this situation than to eat lunch. I would encourage you. you. You got a son or a daughter that's like totally off the rails. You and your wife just say, hey, every Tuesday at lunchtime, we're not going to have lunch. We're going to pray for Bill. We're going to pray for Sally. We're going to pray for them. Or you're in a tough situation at work, and it feels like there's almost this spiritual stronghold going on at work. Then you start dedicating. It's, it's almost like in this situation with the demonic stronghold, until you get serious about something changing, there's no breakthrough. And there's nothing more serious. I promise you, if I miss one meal, it's a big deal. Because I miss no meals. You can see I'm very well fed. right? I don't miss food. I, I love food. And when I finally miss a meal to say, God, I need your help. God moves. God moves. Not because of me, but because of the plan of prayer and fasting. Some people never use this tool in their toolbox to break through difficult situations. Our mountain high, you know, I know people that are such, you know, every time you talk to them, they're telling you about the just cool spiritual thing they're learning, which is awesome. But some of them live in their own little spiritual bubble and they really never interact to help brokenhearted people. Other people, they minister to broken hearts so much they're always spent. They have need fatigue. Because they don't get close to the Lord. I want you to know the sweet spot of being useful for God is being filled up in your time with Jesus and then poured out as you see people that are in need. Don't be afraid of people with needs that you don't have all the answers. Just bring that little bit of faith you have. Pray with them. Love them. Listen to them. Care about them. And God will lead the way to bring victory to people's lives. Comfort to people's lives. Help for people's lives. My friend that his son... Jake went home to be with the Lord at 17. God has used it. I mean, it wasn't a ministry that him, that Gordon and Roxy wanted. But they have ministered for years after that when parents came and lost kids. They would come up to me and they'd say, hey, you know, I just lost my two-year-old traffic accident or this or that. And I would say, you need to talk to Gordon. Because you see, I don't know what that, that pain feels like. But he does. And I, I watched what it looked like on his face. Even to this day, that happened in 1999, June 23rd, 1999. Even today, when Tammy and I are with them and we talk about Jake, we are all brought to tears. But God has used that for his glory to touch many, many broken lives. Because Gordon and Roxanne let themselves be filled up by the Lord and poured out. Roxy, through this process, all of her Christian girlfriends said, Roxy, you need to go on antidepressants. And Roxy's just so, she's a, such a lover of Jesus in this regard. She says, you know what, I, I, I mean, I understand if people need that. But she said, this pain that the Lord has allowed into my life, I want to feel it all. I want to embrace it all. And I want to bring it into a place of faith and trust that God will use it. And he has. It's 
so powerful. Don't be afraid when tragedy comes. Because the Lord that was on the mountain is also in your living room or in the emergency room. He's there to meet you. He's there to help you. From valley, mountain highs and valley lows, Jesus is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that by your spirit and your kindness, you would do a special work right now. Lord, because there are fathers, mothers, just men and women that are in places that they just are beside themselves and they need your help to break through. And Lord, we pray right now that you would minister to them and meet them. So we're just closing right now in prayer. If you have some area in your life you just really desperately need the Lord to touch, I just want to invite you to stand wherever you're at. We're just going to pray for you. We don't know what the issue is. Maybe you're standing on behalf of someone. We don't know what that is. We don't care. We just want to agree with you. God bless you guys. We want to, we want to join with you and bring that mustard seed of faith to your situation. Lord bless you guys. Anybody else? Lord, there's people all over this room, men and women, that are coming, and all of us are just saying, Lord, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Lord, help us believe that you can work in this. And Lord Jesus, we're just asking that you would fill us with faith, that you would that you would move in this situation and that we could look back at this day that this is a day we laid this at your feet even as a, a broken-hearted father brought his son to the feet of Jesus and watched him be set free. Lord, set free and minister to our sons and our daughters in our marriages or whatever that difficult situation is. Lord, those, whether it's they're here in this building or they're watching live stream, Lord, would you meet them? Would you meet them with your love and your power and your grace? to break through. Lord, in our humanness, we're, we're so weak and helpless so often to fix what's broken right in front of us. But Lord, you're able, and we trust you now. We bring it and lay this issue at your feet. And thank you in advance for how you're going to work by faith. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together with those who are standing. And I want you to know if you need more prayer, there's a prayer team going to come down here in front. They'll love to lay hands on you. Maybe you need a touch of healing. They'll anoint you with oil. They'll minister to you. May the Lord keep you in his grace as you walk with him. This Wednesday night, Dr. Tenpenny is going to be great at 6 o'clock. One of those doctors that was an early truth teller of what the real facts were about things. So come join us for that. May the Lord keep you in his loving kindness. Till we're together again. Let's worship him with this closing song.